Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Thank you, as always, for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or wherever you happen to be uh, tuning in from. Um, we've never had the opportunity to meet. My name is Jamie. It is my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. It's a joy to be able to open up God's word uh, with you all. Um, as a quick aside, I didn't know if anybody was gonna show up in their, their 80s skate night outfit this morning. I'm a little disappointed that none of us chose to do that, maybe myself included. But anyway, um, those of you that came out for that, it was a great time. Um, if you didn't, you missed out. You got to come next year. All right. But um, anyway, we are continuing this series called Rise. It's this journey through the great letter, the great book of 1 Thessalonians. And in it, Paul is laying out for us what it means to actually know that we are part of this resurrection story, that the resurrection is not just something to celebrate on Easter Sunday, but rather every time we gather as the church, it is this reminder and it's a reminder that I desperately need, that you desperately need, that we are caught up in this amazing story in the midst of pain and suffering and difficulty, there's still this resurrection, this new creation story that's bursting forth. And so we're gonna be this morning uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 to 18. I uh, would invite you, encourage you, exhort you, uh, have this in front of you. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews this morning. You can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home uh, with you as a gift. Uh, you can also scan the QR code, which will bring up a menu where you can click sermon notes. Uh, it's there, or go to thisiscp.church and click the little blue next steps icon. But as you're turning there, if you would, if you're able, please stand and join me as, as I read God, God's word, if you would stand, um, just a reminder of the power of God's word and that it is living and active and, and we are trusting it to do a work this morning. I don't know the particulars of what you brought in, but I do know this, that like God by his spirit is gonna minister to us through his word, not because of anything that I say, uh, but because of God's word being true to what it actually is. It is living and it's active and it's going to, to cut, it's gonna bring comfort, it's gonna do the, these things. And so we open ourselves up to that this morning. So here God's word, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as verse 18 says, Paul encourages us, hey, there's a lot of thoughts, there's a lot of opinions, there's a lot of takes on like even what it looks like when Jesus returns and some of the particulars. And he's saying, hey, in light of the realities that we face, like encourage one another with these words in this text. And so that's the, the hope. That's what I've been praying for this week, for you all, for myself, that we might be encouraged in this. 
And as we get into this text where the apostle Paul is dealing with the reality of those who have fallen asleep, those who have passed away, that those who have died, how are we to think about that? Let me pose a question to you this morning. Like, how do you think about death? How do you think about the afterlife? How how do you think about these things? Do you actually, maybe it might be a better question. Do you think about these things? Or do you perhaps tend to just busy yourself with like, well, I don't wanna consider those particular things. And I'm not saying that that's the most fun thing to think about, but I think it is important that we give consideration to it. How are we to actually think about death? It is 1051 right now. That means you are 21 minutes closer to your death than when this service started. So welcome to church, right? How are we to grapple with those, those things? And is that meant to like just completely bum us out and be like, this is the worst church service ever? Like, how do we think about those things? And I admit, like, I don't naturally want to think about those things. Case in point, um, my wife and I this past week, and by this past week, I mean finalized it yesterday, um, was just like, hey, you know, we're 47 years old. We got a couple of kids. We got a mortgage, a dog. Like, like maybe we should consider like, what if something actually happened to us? Like maybe we should have like an official will and those sort of things, right? Um, And so we begun that like sort of paperwork, uh, doing that, submitting these forms online and and all that. And it interestingly, like my wife's, uh, she submitted all her stuff and it got completed and like like ready to go, ready to be notarized, all, all of that. Um, mine came back the next day and it was just like, um, please call us, there's an issue with your form. I'm like, what? Like, um, and, uh, and then I was like, well, I don't need to deal with that today. I got a busy work week, right? I got a skate night to attend. I got all these things to do, right? Um, and so literally on a Saturday afternoon, I finally called the place um, a bit maybe because, you know, I don't like to think about death. I'm like, well, my wife and I, were getting in a car to, to drive the interstates. Yeah, maybe it'd be wise to, to figure these, uh, these things that we're driving later today. And so I called and, and uh, found out, I don't know what this actually says about me. And I did not plan to get a will on the week that I was talking about this text. That's just kind of how it happened to work out. Uh, but I called there and they're like, yeah, there was just one, one issue. Um, I, you know, one of the boxes that you had selected is that kind of the beneficiaries, those that would get like the things that you have, mainly your debt. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But um, those that would receive those things, uh, you selected your pet. Um, And I was like, oh, I mean, I love Bailey, right? Um, But man, I did not intend for that to be the thing. The kids were like, wait, what? Yeah, the dog gets the house. I'm sorry, right? Uh, We got to take care of the dog first. Um, And then Interestingly though, I, that had been selected, but then no amount had actually been, you know, so they're like, yeah, you can't say you're gonna give it to the dog and then select zero dollars, right? And so I was like, no, 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 I did not intend to do that at all, right? Now, in that it's kind of comical, but the reality is I don't wanna think about these things. Like I just wanna go through life. Why do I have to think about that? I mean, there's, it is a weighty matter actually to be like kind of reading through those forms and like, well, if you die and then this happens, I mean, it's like, oh gosh, like that's, And yet, if we don't take it seriously, if we don't ever consider the weightier matters of things like death, I actually don't think we'll live the life that we're called to live. A number of years ago, I read a great biography, a guy named Walter Isaacson. Uh, He's written a number of different biographies. And one of the ones that he was commissioned to do, most of them that he's written are about people that had passed away a long time ago. But as Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, and many of you are familiar uh, with him, uh, as he was nearing the end of his life. And he knew that likely his life was on this earth was going to come to an end. Um, 
Walter Isaacson had reached out and they came to an agreement that Steve Jobs, who was normally a very private person, um, was going to give Walter Isaacson an access that very few people had to invite Walter into his home, to share stories about the history of Apple, about Steve, about his own upbringing, about all of these things, things that shaped him as a man, as a businessman, all, all of these, these things. And in this massive biography that was completed shortly after Steve Jobs' death. That was the, the plan. It was like, hey, write all of it, but then like you can write the concluding chapter after I pass, and that was to be published. Uh, Walter Isaacson records a time where he's sitting in the home, in the backyard, in the garden with, of Steve Jobs' home. And here are these words. This is Steve Jobs reflecting on the end of his life. He says this. This is Walter Isaacson writing. I remember sitting in his backyard, in his garden one day. And he started talking about God. And he, that's Jobs, said, sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50 maybe. But ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more. And I find myself believing a bit more. Maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife that when you die, it doesn't just all disappear. The wisdom you've accumulated, maybe somehow it lives on. And it says this, then he paused for a second. He said, yeah, but sometimes... I think it's just like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. And then he paused again and said, and that's why I don't like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. And so as here's a man who by all measures had incredible worldly success, power, fame, right? Anything his heart desired, massive influence, all of these things grappling with the important matters. But sadly, seemingly just at the very end of his life. Like, how are we to think about these things? And in 1 Thessalonians, what Paul does here is he writes as a good pastor to a group of people that have got some confusion. We're gonna see that in verse 13. We're gonna look at the confusion that they're dealing with, the questions that they have, the uncertainty, and how Paul wants them to be more informed. And by informed, it doesn't mean that Paul is gonna answer every last question they had and that, or that he would answer every last question that you have about all the particularities of like, hey, do all my end times books that I've read, is that how it actually plays out, right? Um, where the late night TV preachers, are they the ones that are getting it right? Like how, he doesn't answer every last detail, but he does speak to them about is ultimately what is most important, to lead them from a place of confusion to a confidence that they can have in the story that they're part of and why understanding the end is so radically transformative for how we live right here, right now. And ultimately ends in, as verse 18 spoke of, being this encouragement, this comfort. So let's start with the confusion that, that Paul is addressing and give you a little bit of the, the backstory here. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses, verse 13. It says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, he says, my brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And those words that are highlighted there, let me, let me just unpack those a little bit. For one, he's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed, meaning there have been questions that have been posed, all right, uh, to Paul, this, this new church in Thessalonica, they're wrestling with, and Paul's like, hey, I don't want you to be uninformed. And so out of care and compassion, he writes to answer their questions and be encouraged that the questions they have are similar questions that we have. And God in his grace has given us this timeless word, his word that not only spoke to a church a couple thousand years ago in a region of Macedonia, but also speaks to us like right here, like on June 11th, 2023, right? Like these particular things. And he's like, 
I don't want you to be uninformed. What had taken place, and if you were here last week, you know that I spoke of the call that we have to do our work, do our work under the Lord. And in reality, what had taken place in Thessalonica is they were so confident that Jesus was going to return, which is great, but their confidence, they also had very particular beliefs about how soon that was going to happen. Like they literally were like, dude, he's coming back Wednesday, right? And so many of them were quitting their jobs, neglecting their responsibilities. There was kind of this undercurrent of like, it's any day now. And Paul had to write them to say, no, no, that, listen, I'm glad you know he's coming back. We don't know the timing of it. So just like settle down, get back to work, like call your boss, ask him you have your job back, like work on those things. And if you imagine though, that this group of people was living with this mindset of like, oh, Jesus is coming back any day now. But as day after day after day goes by and week after week goes by and months become years, what begins to take place as you know, is just the brokenness of this world, whether young or old and anywhere in between, like some of their loved ones, family members, friends, people in their church community, some had passed away and they were grappling with weight People have passed away who have become Christians and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Like what's gonna happen to them? And so Paul's like, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know the hope that they have. And that's why he says, all right, about those who are asleep. And so he's gonna address that. We'll see in just a moment. But he also says that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. There's a way that the world grieves and a way that the world has very little hope. And Paul's saying, listen, it's not as Christians, as the church, that we don't grieve. If that's a tradition you've come out of, it's like, hey, you just need to like kind of toughen up and right, um, and just make sure you don't show emotion. You just gotta plow on, on through. That is incredibly detrimental to your emotional, spiritual health, all of that and the people around you. Like there's an actual call to grieve. It's a gift that the Lord has given us. And only in Christianity can these things be rightly held in tension of good biblical God honoring grief and yet with hope. Because where the culture tends to go, it might be a grieving and then it's just despair, or it might be a very shallow view of hope that is just like, hey, we'll just get through it and death is natural. No, 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 death is the most unnatural thing ever. And so Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I wanna give you a picture of what it looks like to grieve rightly. And if you're in a place of suffering right now, whether dealing with death of a loved one or just the suffering pain in just a general sense or other particular things, like there is space to grieve. You should grieve, you should not ignore it, right? The calling of the Christian as you're trying to come alongside somebody who's grieving, Romans 8:28 is incredible. It's true, it's beautiful. God works all things together you know, for his good, for those who, who love God, who are called according to his purpose, like yes and amen to all of that. Also, not always the best verse to quote when somebody's just dealt with extreme loss. Why don't you let them maybe sit in that for a moment and you sit with them in that and not be like Job's friends who did it well for a couple of days. And then the problems happen when they open their dumb mouths, right? And like started like, well, let me help you with this. Like, no, 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 just shut your mouth and just be with me for a moment in my grief. The Bible gives us incredible resources. It's the only religion, worldview, story, belief system out there that helps hold these things in tension. Because our tendency, there's a great book by James K.A. Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at Calvin University. And he wrote a book called On the Road with St. Augustine. And the last, one of the last chapters is on death as he's dealing with these different themes. And he's like, look at how the world tends to deal with something like grief. He says this, this is kind of the general mindset and how we approach things. 
if you don't have the gospel story. We've made peace with death. We'll settle for notoriety and memory then. Even our funerals are elaborate exercises of denial, he's saying sometimes, transposed into celebrations of life. Our hope is not life eternal, but a legacy that survives us. And our confidence that we can achieve such immortality seems odd though, he says, when you consider the myriad of forgotten ones who've preceded us. You see what he's saying? Is he's like, he's not anti-calling a celebration of life. If you've ever done that, it's not like you're wrong for doing that. But let's just, culturally, if we just look, I don't think our world has the resources to know how to grieve. And the best we can come up with about hope is not this long view of the eternal life, but well, maybe just memory or influence will, will live on. But it's worth asking like, is that it? Like, is that all that there actually is? Because as he speaks of, right, he says the, these words, and I think it's true, consider the myriad of forgotten ones who've preceded us. I remember my grandparents, those that have passed away and the ones still remaining. I remember some of my great-grandparents. My great-great-grandparents, I couldn't tell you their names. I couldn't tell you a single thing about them. And maybe that's on me for not doing ancestry.com real well or whatever, right? But the truth of the matter is, if that's all we're living for, like that just goes away in a couple of generations. What is actually lasting? And so sometimes then we opt just as a culture to be like, I don't know how to deal with this. So we just think duration is where it's at. And so Smith continues, he says, perhaps even more pointedly, we don't want to be seen dying. So the padded and privileged expend their energy and reserve uh, reserves on the creeping harbinger of death we call aging. Thus emerges another market, the wellness industri industrial complex, which at once capitalizes on our fear of dying and leverages what physician Raymond Barfield calls our quote, desire to be desirable. The fear of death with no grasp of what makes a life truly good is the stupendously irrational desire for mere duration. Friends, the story, the gospel story, the resurrection story thankfully speaks of something so much more true and profound and something worth actually living for, this story that we've been caught up in. It's not just about duration. It's not just about like just trying to get through or maybe you know have a, having a name that might last for a generation. No, it's about this eternal life. And yet in this, we have to look no further. The best example, John chapter 11, all right? Perhaps the verse, if you're a kid that grew up in the church, that you're like, I wanna memorize that verse. It's John eleven thirty-five 35, because it literally says these words, right? Jesus wept, all right? And as a kid to be like, ha yeah, I memorized this short verse, whatever. Like it was far more profound if I had actually grasped the implications of what that meant, it would be life transformative because Jesus, if you know the story, brings together grief and hope in the exact same moment as he is grieving the death of his friend Lazarus, right? Mary and Martha are, are there and people are wondering like how he's going to respond. And Jesus is told that Lazarus has died, all right? And when he encounters Mary, it tells us in verse 35 that he wept. And don't think for a moment, like his eyes got a little misty or one little tear trickled down or he's like, you know, kind of doing one of these. That was not it. It was a full on sobbing brokenness. Just, he was making a scene. And the surrounding language, it tells us even as he begins to call forth for Lazarus to come out of the tomb, right? Like Jesus is weeping and he's about to raise his friend from the dead. And the language around Jesus wept and the language around him calling Lazarus forth, it's not just a deep sadness, but it's also a deep fury. It's a deep anger. 
It's an anger that death has had an effect on this world that Jesus created and death was never part of the plan. And so he's furious and he's saddened by it. And what we see is this tension of like, we can grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope because what Jesus is gonna do in that moment is give us a little snapshot of the resurrection life. It's in this context that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. There's this whole new story you get to be part of. And if you understand that, it will inform all of the suffering. It will inform all of the work that you do right here, right now. And so Jesus wept. Now that's the context. Like Paul is saying, listen, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to grieve, but not as those without hope. I want you to look to Jesus. I want you to see this resurrection story you're part of, the hope that you have. And I also wanna give you space though as well to grieve what is broken, but to not fixate on that to the point that we lose sight of the hope, all right? And so what Paul then does in verses 14 to 15 is say, here's the confidence, my friends. He's like, let me lay this out for you. And verse 14 says this, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he gets word, there's questions, there's confusion. And do you notice what Paul immediately wants to do? His desire as a disciple of Jesus, he's like, let me take you back. I'm not gonna answer all your particular questions. And a lot of people are gonna have different takes on the end times. And we can agree to disagree on some of those things and they're fun debates in all of it. But I want you to know the big story, the big E on the eye chart, do not miss this. He says there, like we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then he says, he will bring, like God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's this very short, succinct sort of creedal statement here that occurs in 1 Thessalonians 4. What are the things that we need to know? Jesus did die after living a sinless life, after dying a sinner's death that he did not deserve, where he drank the cup of wrath fully so that it would never, that we would never have to do that. That he was pierced for our transgressions. Like he was wounded. The flesh was ripped off of his back, but more than the physical pain and the nails in his arms and his his feet and his hands and his feet was the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Being cut off from his heavenly father so that you and I would never be cut off. And then it tells us in that moment where it looked like death was actually victorious, Jesus three days later rose again. And there's this whole new story. There's this new creation. So Jesus died, Jesus is risen. And then because of this, Paul says, hey, Those that have fallen asleep, they will rise again. And he's gonna lay out a bit of what that actually looks like. I love the way that John Stott in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians speaks of it. He gives this quote to help us sort of orient ourselves. The next time you happen to see a cemetery, you're in one, you drive by one, whatever. He says this, cemeteries, my friends, are dormitories of the dead. Cemeteries are dormitories of the dead that there will come a day when you will awake from your slumber. He's saying those who have fallen asleep, if they are in Christ, they're gonna be awakened to a whole new reality and it's gonna be so glorious. And so don't lose sight. So keep being faithful, keep being reminded of this resurrection story that you're part of. And so he says, hey, if they've fallen asleep before Jesus returns, they're not at any disadvantage. Friends, they really are okay. But what about those then who are left here, right? What about those then who are left when Jesus returns? Do they have an advantage or a disadvantage? And Paul's just trying to say, no, no, you're missing the point, right? 
And maybe the older we get, I, I certainly remember as a, as a young kid and growing up in the church and believing from an early age, I was like, oh yeah, Jesus is definitely coming back in, in my lifetime. Because I couldn't picture what it would be like, you know, like it's mind boggling to even think about the age that I am right now, right? Like couldn't comprehend it. Now, admittedly, I didn't want him to come back for a few years because I had a lot of basketball I wanted to play, right? Um, so I definitely had that going on in my mind, right? But there's this, this sense here of like, hey, if you happen to be alive when he returns, praise God but you're at no advantage or disadvantage. So what about those who are still alive? Well, Paul addresses that in verse 15 and just says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left into the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. To precede would be this idea that, you know, they get to go first, that there's some advantage to them. Like, ha we made it. And you, you know, like, no, right? Literally everybody is equal who are in Christ you all get the same advantages. And so what Paul's doing then in this, this section, he's just saying, I wanna remind you of the confidence that you have. It's the gospel, like keep going back to that. Remember the story that you're part of. And yet we're very quick to forget that story, right? Like you go back, um, you know, a couple of decades, cer certainly, right? Maybe not even that, that long ago. Let's say you happen to be watching like a, a, a film or there's some show that you're watching and you're feeling like very anxious and very drawn into the story and wondering how it's going to, to resolve. And, you know, this is a place where you can be honest. It's a safe place. Have any of you at any point ever been like, I'm going to get my phone out. I'm going to Google the ending of this thing, right? Anybody have ever done that? You can, you can say, okay, so my wife did raise her hand. That's all I was looking for, actually. So, um, <laughs> um, uh, and a few of the rest of you guys, you can have a little support group. It's going to be great. Um, but in all seriousness, right? Like we get our phones out. We're like, we can find the, the ending of, of, any, of anything. Like, oh yeah, somebody did a write-up. There's spoilers everywhere. Now, that may not be your style, all right? Um, but whether it is or isn't, the point is this, like it's possible to, to find out the end. And my wife would say, yeah. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I wanna enjoy the rest of the film. Like what? Like it doesn't make sense to me sometimes. But yet there's this like, oh, we know how it resolves. Like I literally, um, on a little family trip with uh, my parents and sisters and stuff, we were out a couple weekends ago and uh, watched the movie. And this is the second time that I've seen it. It's the, the movie Air. If, you have, if you've seen that, it's a fascinating movie about the account of who was gonna sign Michael Jordan, all right? Who was gonna get the shoe contract, all right? Was it gonna be Converse? Was it gonna be Adidas? Or was it gonna be, what was the underdog at the time? Nike, all right? And so literally, even the second time having watched this and you, should probably, you probably do know how this resolved. And I knew the ending, like I'd had Jordan shoes at one point, didn't help my game, but I had his shoes. Now I knew, yes, he's going to sign with Nike. Everybody knows that he signs with, and if you're like, spoil, no, everybody knows that, all right? So you can still watch the film. Like, and yet I did even still, even the second time through, find myself at moments like, oh, how's this gonna resolve, right? Because there's something about us just seeing the circumstances that are right in front of us and forget just a movie. Now just think real life of what really matters. And we can know, yes, that we're part of this resurrection story and yet lose sight of it. And Paul is like, hey, I sense the anxiousness. I, I, I sense the, the lack of peace. I, I want you to know, I want to speak words of comfort. Be reminded of the confidence that you have in the gospel. And so sometimes friends, not just sometimes, like this is part of what's so important with what we're doing right here. 
This is not the only thing of what it means to be the church, but things start here as we start our week together. They flow out from here because we need to be like restoried. Like all week, there's been a narrative, a story about what it looks like to live this life and what we're supposed to achieve and accomplish and all of this. And then there's an anxiousness that just creeps up. There's all of this stuff that we're carrying in the mundane of life and in the really painful things of life. And we have this opportunity to come together and be reminded of what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, everything about who Jesus is and who we are in him. And so that's where this goes. Then Paul says, let me bring you increasingly words of comfort. Look with me at verses 16 to 18. Paul says this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Look at a few of the, those words. For one, don't miss this. The Lord himself will descend. The Lord himself. He's not sending a courier. He's not sending like a right-hand man. He, he's not sending an email. He's not sending a text. The Lord himself, the embodied Lord Jesus, not this soul floating around, the resurrected Lord Jesus. It says the Lord himself will descend or another translation like will appear. So we think about it kind of spatially like, oh, heaven's up there. Like, and so Paul's kind of playing into that, even though it isn't really true. Like, oh, it's not up and down necessarily, but it is this idea of like this different realm. The Lord will descend or the Lord himself will appear from heaven. And how is this going to, to take place? Like, what is, what is this Lord who appears? What is Jesus going to do? It says, with a cry of command, all right, with his voice, the dead in Christ will rise first. If you go all the way back, the story of the scriptures is Jesus who's the word, the word made flesh. It's this word that is spoken in Genesis 1 where Jesus is the word spoken and new, like brand new, like creation, something that's never been made before out of the chaos, out of the void of the darkness. This is the spirit of God is hovering over those waters. The Lord speaks a word and there's creation that happens. And now what is this reminder, this word of comfort, the Lord himself, this is how personally intimately he is involved in your life and my life and our suffering. He will descend and he will speak a word. And initially this word that he speaks, it's not making new oceans and mountains and, and all of that. At this point, what he's gonna do is he's gonna speak this word of new creation where those who have passed away will be brought forth that there'll be their spirits who are in the presence of God right now will join together with the resurrected bodies. Even those who have been in the grave for decade upon decade and everything is decayed, there'll be this resurrection, this new body that they have. It says, all right, so they will rise first. So that's gonna take place. But then Paul says, okay, and what about those then who are here when the Lord Jesus descends? And this is where we get into some of just some of the weirdness that is evangelical belief systems, right? Because we all kind of have this picture. It comes from these verses here. And I hope to like explain this a bit more, all right? Because verse 17 says this, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, meaning those that have risen first in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. We'll deal with that last part in just a moment. Those words there, be caught up together. 
I don't know what kind of church tradition you grew up in, whether it used this word a lot or a little, or maybe you had no church tradition, but I, but I know this, that you've probably heard the word rapture before, right? And it's these words will be caught up together. It's kind of like this, this violent imagery of like somebody or someone like taking, like snatching them away, like removing them. And so there's this picture then based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, that is like, all right, as a Christian, you're just gonna be minding your business one day. You're gonna be out and about and all of a sudden, boom, you're like up in the clouds, right? So this is what generates things like this, all right? And if this is on your car, my apologies ahead of time, but maybe you've seen this, right? In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Have you seen those sort of things, right? And which has always been a little bit mind boggling because at one level, you're just like, okay, so your unmanned vehicle, like my mind, this is how weird it is. I'm like, well, what if it's on cruise control? I mean, it's just like a missile now, right? Like it's just taking people out and dogs and, and restaurants. I mean, who knows, right? It's just like, well, I'm up in the sky and your vehicle is just moving all over town. Like, how are we to think about that? Well, what Paul is saying is like, oh, you need to understand this in a way, like particularly for us, there's words that are being used here that bring something very specific, a very unique cultural understanding and context that if we don't get it, we're just gonna have that sort of like weird rapture notion of like, hey, you're just marching along and boom, like just up you go. And people are like, well, what happened, right? Um, and it ties into the next phrase, all right? So Paul says this, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. And this word here, meet or to meet, is a very loaded, very particular, very unique Greek word. It shows up once in the New Testament and it's right here in this verse, all right? And so the Greek word is this apontasis. And it literally is where it says to meet, to meet the Lord. This apontasis is going to happen. So there's some relationship, there's some connection between, all right, we're going to be like kind of snatched away, caught up to meet the Lord, that this apontasis is going to happen. And if we don't understand what that word means, we'll just continue to live with sort of our notions of what it, what it, the end times looks like, all right? When Jesus comes back. Apenstasis, here was the cultural reference. It was a reference to a king or an emperor or like a conquer, conquering like war hero, or like general, like some sort of dignitary was approaching your town, right? So you think about it, like any of you have ever had people over to, to your home, if somebody's coming over and you have like a couple minutes, at least advance notice, like you're at least probably like trying to maybe put the dishes away and maybe you're gonna quickly vacuum, right? Maybe you'll put the toilet seat down. I don't know what you do to welcome guests, right? But like, there's this, this thing, like you're going to like try and get it ready. Now you think about like, oh, if it's like, like this world renowned, like famous person is coming over to your house. Imagine like how much more that would be amped up. Apenstasis is this idea that would have been familiar in that time, in that place of if the emperor, the Caesar, the king, the known ruler of the time was coming to your town, here's what you would do. You would not stay doing what you were doing. If you got word that the emperor, the king, the ruler was coming, you would leave your home, you would leave your workplace, You'd leave whatever, you're out in the park with your kid. Like you would leave that. You would literally leave everything that you were doing, all right? So that you and everyone in that town would leave and move outside of the city. And you would go outside of the city to do what? 
to form a welcoming committee so that that emperor, that king would never make it all the way to your town without you having first greeted them. I mean, you would form this whole crowd and you would go out there with all this zeal and all this excitement and you would be like, welcome, thank you. And instead of going out just to stay with them, you'd be inviting them to come stay with you. And oppenstasis, this idea here, what Paul is saying is, yes, there will be this rapture, so to speak, of the Lord, you'll be caught up in the air, all right? But it's not because you're gonna stay there or become this disembodied thing just floating around and you just get issued your harp and you're playing that forever, right? But rather, we're not talking about a warrior or we're not talking about a emperor or a Caesar, right? Or a king, we're talking about the king of kings. The Lord of Lords is coming to your residence. He's coming to your town. He's coming to your city. He's coming to your neighborhood. And the picture here is now we are all gathered. And the reason we're going out and sort of caught up in the air is not so that we would stay there, but so that we can welcome Jesus in. And we can say, we've been waiting for you. We have been making this place ready for you. And we can't finish the work on our own. Like we've made a mess of things. We've tried as much as we can. Your work really does matter. Like give your time and energy, right? Like we looked at last week. And yet we need him to come in and fix it all to fix us physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually and relationally and psychologically and socially. Come clean up this mess that we have made and then please stay. You see how radically different that is than those like, we're just getting zapped up in the air and then we're just gone. It tells us this world matters. And we are simply going out in that moment, joining together with those who've been raised from the dead. If we happen to be alive at that time, we're gonna join them in the air and say, Jesus, please come and dwell with us. And he's going to. He is the conquering hero. This is why Paul would write to another church using the similar image of a king who has conquered everything. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then get this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside and nailed it to the cross. Every sin you've ever committed, every shameful thing you've ever done, every last thing has been recorded. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Like that's overwhelming to me if we're talking like the last couple of days, but for a lifetime. And Jesus says every last one of them, when those spikes were put through his hands and his feet, when he was nailed to the cross, every single one of your sins and my sins were nailed there to the cross. That is what he has accomplished. He is our conquering King. He is the Lord of Lords. And then it says this in verse 15 then, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He stripped them of all their power. He made an open, he made a spectacle of them where it looked like Satan's sin and death, our ultimate foes had won. Jesus flips the script because three days later there's resurrection. And he's saying they've been stripped of their power and he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you are in Christ, this is your story. This is what you're invited to. This is why Paul, of course, he has to end with verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So whatever you're facing, know this. The story of the scriptures is God coming to be with his people. And even in this moment, if you're like, yeah, but I don't feel that right. Like if you are in Christ, 
The Holy Spirit has been given to you. He's dwelling with you. The Lord is with us right now, individually and collectively. And yes, there's brokenness and yes, there's pain and there still is death and there's mourning and all that. And so we gotta grieve that, all right? We gotta try and push back the darkness through the kingdom of light by, by being that city on a hill. Like we need to try and do those things through the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. And we do that because we're motivated by the hope that we have. We don't have to earn anything. It's all been earned for us. We get to be the people that give time and energy to things because this world matters. And one day, whether we're raised from the dead or we happen to be alive, we're gonna be caught up together. This beautiful picture of all of us as God's people, then going out to see Jesus and then inviting him here. And he's not gonna turn down the invitation. His plan is to stay and his plan is to stay forever. And his plan is to renew everything, to remake everything, to come and to dwell with us. This is where Revelation, we'll close with this, 21 says this, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. If you're in Christ, like you're part of God's people. You belong to God and he is coming to dwell with you. He's coming to dwell with us. That's the resurrection story that we're part of. And it infuses everything, even in the midst of grief, it infuses it with hope. So I wanna encourage you to take some time now as I lead us in prayer. And just ask, ask the Lord, ask the spirit, like lead, to lead you repentance. Like where are the places maybe where you've lost sight of this? To repent simply means to move in a new direction. What does it look like to really remember and to, to rejoice in who you are in Christ? And part of the way we're gonna remember is we're gonna sing together and we're gonna respond in prayer and we're gonna participate in a few moments in this meal together. These are all things that the Lord has given so that we might actually remember his grace and the story we're part of. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your exquisite grace, your grace that you've lavished upon us through your son. Thank you for the resurrection story and thank you for the resurrection stories that you are writing. We pray that many more might come to, to know the power of the resurrection. And so Lord Jesus, we pray right now that through your spirit, you would meet us in our grief and pain, the, the places of sorrow, of deep sadness. And yet may we also not grieve as those without hope. May you just comfort us, Holy Spirit. You do your job exceedingly well. Like you bring, you are the comforter. So bring your comfort where it's needed. Bring your conviction. We thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's never the voice of God that speaks condemnation. But Spirit, we know you bring conviction because you love us and care for us and you want to bring about increased transformation in our lives as we thank you for that kindness. And so we surrender to you. We ask that you would have your way, that you would work um, and that you would be at work building your church collectively and that you'd be building us individually as disciples uh, of Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do this for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.